0: Get into the weeds of all of these cultural questions and really start to reform institutions in what is quite a heavy-handed way—a sort of centralized way. It's still democratic and it's still, you know, it's respecting people's individual rights. And it's not going against the law, but it is saying we don't trust the institutions to be neutral.
1: Hmm. Essentially, I think me and Carl have been also curious as to ask sort of what made what made you snap or
0: how did you <laughs> change? You're my. Den unge manden, han er the arc of the moral universe is long, but it tends to adjust. How dare you?
1: Not yet, something that I saw fungered.
2: It's great to have you on, Eric. I have to show you. I bought your book back in 18. Oh, fantastic. It's, it's a really uh, thick and heavy book. And I think you were one of the first people who sort of articulated in this sort of, uh, I call it mainstream sense, but also it's very like meticulously drawn from the demographic trends. And I that's the thing I think has been Lacking from the discourse, it's always been like people trying to uh, interpret sort of populist wave and basically if you're a populist, you have a take and if you're an anti-populist, you have a take, but your I think case was 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 fascinating when it came out and it's even more sort of relevant today, I think so It's great to have you on
0: well thanks very much carl okay well let's just kick it off
1: then one of the things we're trying to figure out with the podcast and our in our conversations is how to develop new political ideas in a country such as sweden and and obviously, being being uh, um, a student of um, political sciences and perhaps populism in particular, what we think of here is is the rise of a new kind of populist party or uh, or vector in in Sweden. And while this can be said to be present throughout all the Western world, what's interesting about Sweden is that you've had this quite overt progressive political agenda that most of of the political parties have sort of like wholesale tapped into then you have even a lack of a self-understanding of how how we can have other political interests in sweden uh, of which the sweden democrats would would be the, the main vessel for but now in a way it's it's uh, endemic to to all of the the western world but so so for that reason alone i think it's relevant for us also to to get you on, because somehow it feels like, as Swedes, we don't really see the, f- the forest behind all the trees. Right. <laughs> but also, I mean, it, going to, your, to you as, as a person, I mean, you you yourself, if we borrow from from the, the dichotomy of anywheres and somewheres, uh, are very much yeah. uh, an, an anywhere. Yourself, born in Hong Kong, citizen of Canada. I think between your mother and fathers, there's a pr- um, fluency in 20 languages, so polyglot to say the least. <laughs>
0: Yeah, not me, but them. Yeah, <laughs> but of course, if you look, obviously, historically, um, you know, a lot of people who have developed national ideas or nationalist ideas have been people either in the border borderland areas, or sometimes from mixed backgrounds, or you know, many examples one could go. Through. I mean, like M. and De Valera, for example, in Ireland, half Spanish, lived in the United States. Partly, that's about when you grow up abroad, you become more aware of, of nationality because you are... My dad was in the Canadian embassy in the Far East. And, you know, nation, nation is not taken for granted the same way it is if you grow up inside a country. So you have to think about it at an earlier stage. So I think that's definitely one of the reasons we see this pattern in history. And, um, and yeah, so I think that partly explains that.
2: As a Swede, that's very fascinating because I, I think... Uh, we have been one of the most homogeneous societies throughout the t- 20th centuries and, and also like I, th- I think we we settled the the sort of national identity discussion way way back in the in the, in the distant past. So uh, hence I think it's fascinating for me because the modern project, in sweden has is also a project that sort of only included ethnical swedes and and the country was very homogeneous so when we break into the 21st uh the 21st century we have this huge immigration that sort of goes on from the 80s and i think this is this is one of the the paradoxes that that's sort of hard to break in sweden because as a, as, a, as a very homogeneous society, we don't have the sort of ideas of nationality, and we've sort of forgotten them because we did not have any any participation in the wars for 200 years. So I think here we have like a hotbed of of, of un-understanding of the sort of processes that you are so good at explaining. And I, I think I would like your take on... Well, you can see the difference between sort of the Anglosphere and Europe in that sense.
0: I'm always generally of the view that the Anglosphere is less different from Europe. And in fact, the new world is less different from the old world than than many people presume. So, for example, both the U.S., well, U.S., Canada, Australia, New Zealand all had quite overwhelming ethnic majorities, Which now the difference there is of course they were maybe had some contact with difference, and so they were much more self-consciously trying to preserve something. So for example, Mm. the US immigration policy had fixed quotas based on the share of the American population that already existed from about the nineteen twenties to the nineteen sixties, or you had in canada they were in canada and australia they were always trying to make sure the immigration was as british as possible and they kept certain groups excluded entirely so so but the point is that the the whole society was envisioned around an ethnic majority the same way it was in europe and so when you start to get this liberalization occurring it's the same debate really it's all Mm -hmm. about oh you're a racist if you want to if you want to conserve a particular ethnic configuration or if you want to make distinctions amongst different types of immigrants or even if you want to slow down the immigration flow so i actually think it's pretty similar and in sweden for example you know if i'm i'm from canada and i would say that you know this whole rush towards a very kind of culturally what i would call the cultural left mm-hmm. a very progressive you know, multiculturalism, uh, let's be super sensitive to minority feelings, let's not talk about immigration because that's not very sensitive. All of that discourse is the same. And the difference, I suppose, is that in Sweden, it's sort of because of the migrant crisis, I think that's helped to break the spell of this taboo a little bit. It, it's helped to open up the d- debate a little bit. That hasn't yet occurred in Canada. It's maybe, mm-hmm. maybe just starting to happen. But and, and and you see this in Ireland as well, where there, there also has been no real debate. And now some of these stresses out of that is going to be born probably something that happened, you know, with the Sweden Democrats, the AFD. I see it as very much very similar sets of processes.
1: I mean, you have studied the Irish situation quite extensively. And I'm thinking here primarily of your book, Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth? And I mean, of course, you you grapple with more phenomena there, but but basically going into the nitty gritty of the conflict between Protestants and Catholics. B- but we're curious, in a way, of of um, what you what you describe there. If I'm not mistaken, is a desecularization. That is, we've taken for granted that the the general trajectory, culture-wise, in the West is towards more secularism. But if we understand it correctly, what you see is a sort of return of an enchanted worldview or group identity with regards to creeds could you could you speak to that matter well
0: yeah there's there's two two separate phases so i did the books on northern ireland and then i did the book on religion and demography and they're somewhat different actually so Mm. the northern ireland is um well you have two two ethnic groups one which is irish catholic the other which is sort of we'll call it british protestant but they're actually quite distinct from Mainland Britain. They're kind of an Ulster Protestant group. Yes. Uh, their origins are with Scottish and British settlers into Northern Ireland. And so, what's interesting there, what I find interesting, it's not really about religion as it was in the 1600s or the, even the 1700s. It's much more now about tribe, mm. with religion as just a marker. I mean, religion. Oh, you, you mean they're not Jacobites anymore? <laughs> <laughs> It's really about, you know, orange and green. It's about Mm. which colors you wear. And it's not uh, now the the level of religion is higher than in mainland Britain, but it's not massively higher. Um, But what's interesting there, I suppose, for me is that it's an exception in many ways to what's happening in the Anglosphere and in the West. So you have history still lives in the minds and hearts of the average citizen much more than it does in main mainland Britain. So you have commemorations that occur several times a year. You have popular histories that are written. You have mass associations, the orange order, which is the one I studied on the Protestant side. Every lodge has, you know, they, they, first of all, there's communications from the center down to the lodges. They do these reenactments. They have histories about, so they know the local battle events and 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 so you have this more of this sense of the past living in the present Mm. much more than uh, in other parts of the west or in many parts of the west and also you have this kind of almost a rebel history so just regardless of what's being taught in the schools you have this popular history and popular memory that is reproduced outside the state and so that shows you a way in which you can resist perhaps i mean if the state is becoming if all history is becoming woke in schools and they just want to teach about how colonialist your society was this provides a counter to that and so yeah i just thought that was quite interesting now the other the, the other thing of course is that these catholic protestant Uh, struggles also occurred in north america so in canada for example the orange order nobody knows this because this is memory hold in canadian schools but you know canada's first prime minister i think four prime ministers were members of the orange order they were every mayor of the city of toronto from the 1870s to the 1950s uh, provincial premiers you know all of this history was completely hidden and so that's sort of what got me interested in this in the first place.
2: Because uh, as, if I remember correctly, Ontario was like the Boston, or in that, in the sense of Boston being the hotbed of Irish Republicanism, sending funds over yeah. to Ireland. Ontario had that same sort of function for the orangist side or for the loyalist side. Is that correct?
0: Well, that sort of, I mean, the the orange tradition in Ontario became more indigenized. So it Mm -hmm. became, you know, you had, you know, it's not just Irish Protestants, but you had Scottish, you know, um, American loyalists, you had even German and others who were members. So it was kind of a a, a more sort of, uh, yeah, it changed shape when it went into Canada, but it was very pro-British, Britannic and, and empire and all of that was very important to it. And so, yeah, to be in the police, to be uh, in the mayor, to mm. be on the Toronto Transit Authority—all of these jobs were for th- for the boys who were in the so that that kind of setup, the way the Irish Catholics ran Boston, is the same way Toronto was was run. And so, yeah, that's interesting, you know. And and nobody knows this in Canada. It's totally, you know, they don't want to know this, perhaps, mm. or it's just something that nobody's interested in because that's the bad old. A British Protestant past and and we're trying to be multicultural. And so that's, you know, so that is kind of just shows you how these different parts, very important parts of history can be completely airbrushed away because they don't fit with anything that the country is trying to promote right now.
1: Speaking of how it doesn't fit, I think my closest reference to what you're describing is um, from The Wire, where where the police force is essentially Irish culture in their drinking habits and how they think of themselves as the boys.
0: Well, yeah, it's interesting because the Irish Catholics in the East Coast cities of the U.S. were, you know, they were kind of an immigrant group. They were second class in in the 19th century. Mm. And then as you start to get into the 20th century, they've worked their way up the police force, then they become the mayors, mm. and then eventually they kind of become a dominant group themselves. <laughs> you know, like Boston, they become a dominant group, and and then the whole thing, it gets inverted, and and so some, somehow, you know, things like the St. Patrick's Day Parade and these other sort of symbols of Irishness somehow now are starting to be associated with whiteness and with the establishment, and mm. so you you've seen this whole thing invert, which is really interesting.
2: But I think that that's that that's the sort of common theme. I think we we have everywhere. You've written several books on the, on the, on the topic from different vectors, but tribe is really a thing that is emerging now out of the, sort of the 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 shattering of of this sort of modernist consensus. Because now we have the the sort of contrast in countries like Sweden. It, may, it might be a, cho- a poor choice of words, but I think everyone understands. Because uh, where culture was once uh, homogenous, we now have a, 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 a very different uh, demography. But also, uh, we have a split between, I think, traditionalist people who who sort of want want to embrace uh, tradition, and also people who who are radically, one could call them woke, for for lack of a better term, cultural revolutionists, basically. And this is a thing we see all over the Western world. So hence, tribe is becoming something important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think it ever was unimportant. Mm. Uh, But of course, the more the demography shifts, the more people are aware that this is something that they're losing. And then you get a defensive reaction. It's a bit like the you know, to some degree, the decline of the Irish and Welsh languages was the beginning of Irish and Welsh nationalism. Mm. And I think so So maybe we're seeing something like that here. And then, of course, if you go through American history, when you started to see the significant shifting demographically, and this was with the Irish ca- Catholics coming in certain East Coast cities, that was the first wave where you saw what's, what's known as the know-nothing or yeah. the American Party. Sorry, can you, can you unpack that? Well, this is the most successful third party in American history called the and, – and they were called the American Party. So you started to get uh, very large-scale Irish Catholic immigration after the famine in Ireland mm. in the 1850s to the point that the Irish became the majority or close to the majority in Boston and a couple of East Coast cities. Mm. And so what you had was this Protestant backlash. Of course, the, the U.S. was – you know the free population was 98 percent protestant at the time of basically almost entirely protestant like 98 something like that Mm. uh up until the 1850s and then you started to see this change and then as a reaction to that change you suddenly had anti-catholicism and you had this american party which i think it got about a quarter of the vote which in a two-party system with uh you know that's quite something, and has never even been touched since I'm trying to remember what ross perot uh but any that was in a primary that wasn't actually in an election. this is in a federal election, and if it wasn't for the Civil War, people said that if it wasn't for the issue of slavery in the Civil War, which split the know nothing movement into its southern and northern components yeah. they they would have won the presidency so this is a sort of hugely important phenomenon in in American history now I could then. You had the Civil War and you had the Irish Catholic immigration sort of went down after that because Ireland wasn't that large of a place. Um, But you then get into the 1890s and the same forces are coming again because you're starting to get more Catholic immigration. This time sort of especially as we get into the late 1890s coming from southern and eastern Europe, Hmm. uh, Italy, Poland, these places – and the the Anglo Protestant share had, was coming towards fifty percent around 1920, and then you had the same, what's called nativism, what what we would call kind of immigration restrictionist, anti Catholic populist movements, spring hmm. up and enact a whole series of restrictionist immigration laws, culminating in the 1924 law, which was says well. We're going to have an immigration flow that matches the ethnic composition of the existing population. And every country has a quota, and they're not allowed to. So the quota for Italy was really small compared to the number of people who wanted to come. And so they instituted these quotas, and that lasted until the liberalization of the mid-1960s in something called the hart Seller Act of 1965. Now, there was a slight liberalization in the 50s, but largely resisted. And so this 60s really represents a shift. By the way, in the 60s, Canada and Australia also relaxed their kind of more, if you like, ethnic quotas. And it became much more of a kind of ostensibly colorblind system. And that's when we get the big demographic shifts. Of course, in Europe, it's something different. Europe used to always send people. And then Europe became a net importer of people. And then so Europe's change happens also Maybe a little later in Sweden than it does in in some other countries like Britain, but mm. if it's all kind of happening around the same time.
2: I, I think that's interesting because I think the the only cultural memory of that I can sort of grasp for is is basically gangs of New York, where you have the that sort of split very visible right. between Daniel Day Lewis's character, who's nativist, and, and and the Roman Catholics. It, it's interesting because I think, as you said, a lot of things have been memory hold and we used. I mean, Sweden is one of the countries. That had immigration restrictions for, I think, the longest time. And in in our case, ostensibly in defense of what we call the Swedish system, which was a, corpor- a corporate system that sort of fused uh labor and capital and sort of had these restrictions of, of immigration to keep uh wages for for working people at a high. And, and this was the, the stated goal of the Social Democrat Party for a very, very long time until basically the 90s. But i think as this sort of modernist consensus sort of collapses now into only tribal politics where we where we see a sort of the discussion of this is only in the sort of framework of of racist versus anti-racist and uh, either you you sort of discuss this sort of as a as a question of justice not as as policy or or as anything else and I I would like to maybe if we could chart that sort of change where sort of race becomes this issue is it a question do you think of demography of 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 the white sort of group being becoming more less than of course I mean, you mean go from 98 to to in the U.S of, of having the sort of Protestant identity? until now where where we see uh, places like California and I think Arizona uh, you know there is a mi- white majority a min- minority mm. yeah,
1: and just to clarify, I think Carl's question in a way is also a way to segue over to your most recent book that is coming out next year taboo where where race becomes this taboo top. Topic so it fits quite neatly into the demographic changes you just described into the cultural shift from like say mid nineteen hundreds onwards.
0: So, so that is a really interesting question that, and I think this is why we need to look at the at the shifts that are occurring within liberalism and within the left. Hmm. You know, you mentioned the corporatist system in in Sweden. You know, in the case of, let's take the United States, the unions were at the forefront of immigration restriction. Mm. The American Federation of Labor, the Knights of Labor, all mm. of these groups going back the 19th century and the 20th century were the strongest voices for restriction because they wanted to keep wages high. Mm. And it was always a coalition between the unions and the, the patriotic societies and maybe, and some conservative intellectuals that was kind of the coalition that was at the forefront of restriction and they had they had populist support as well from from a large particularly the rural mass of the population and don't and the u.s. was predominantly a rural country up until 1920 majority and so what occurs by the time we get into the sort of it's really as late as the 60s that that the shift in the mentality of the union leadership and what's occurring is that the intellectual left, coming out of the universities, coming out of the um, the left-wing elite cultural publications, takes over. Increasingly, starts to take over some of these institutions at the top, or the leadership will be marinated in some of these new ideas. Maybe it was Fabianism in Britain, although there there's some interesting overlaps between Fabianism and eugenics. So, so, so even like something like. Uh, And in Canada, you know, the major left-wing party, the ancestor of the New Democratic Party, um, you know, some of the people who were important in that party were very staunch immigration restrictionists. We have to explain the shift on the left away. And and in fact, Marxists, the Marxist left believe that allowing in people from less developed, less advanced societies would re- make it harder to have socialist revolution, uh, and so the the orthodoxy on the Marxist left was was also immigration restrictionist, mm. not always, not uniformly, but generally, mm. um, and certainly in the case of the U.S. What changes is you you start to get a shift on the left, starting in the nineteen, at the, at the very beginning in the nineteen tens, like in the United States, in particular, liberal progressivism comes in, and that's a different type of left, but it's it's the liberal left. That becomes the dominant strain. And one of their arguments, as we get into the 1930s, 40s, 50s, you know, they're making arguments around the U.S. should, should be a melting pot, a plural society, et cetera. Now, that's that's only the view of a mi- of a minority of the population. Harry Truman and the Democrats, when they're trying to open up immigration in the 50s, they're talking about oh, the Bible says there should be neither Jew nor Greek, and the uh, American Constitution is about we're, we're a um, city on a hill and a beacon to the world, all these sorts of uh, universalist ideas. That's sort of the way they thought about it. But there wasn't this kind of anti-racist sting as much. Yes, yes, there were people saying, I you know, my Jewish and Italian friend are as good of an American as you, Puritan, and, and whatever. So you have some of that kind of moralistic language, but it's not doesn't seem to be taken as seriously. Until we get the sort of race taboo coming in mid-1960s with the civil rights movement, the end of Jim Crow segregation in the South, and suddenly you have this story that just really just seems to suddenly capture the imagination, and overnight you get this sudden change. You know, there's a story... Paul Krugman in the New York Times says, you know, every, everybody in Long Island they repainted their black coachmen on their f- front gates white instead of black, and all of a sudden, you know, and Shelby Steele also talks about it that 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 the whole society was delegitimated overnight almost, and and yeah, I think we're living through that revolution, the rise of that taboo, and then it, it infects everything. It starts to infect immigration. You, oh, that's racist to talk about immigration. Of course, the other thing, of course, the immigration flow had shifted away from Southern and Eastern Europe, not totally, but more towards Latin America, Asia, et cetera. And so it was more of a racial thing, a a racial difference, which mapped onto that new race taboo. And then by the time we get to Europe, it's the same sorts of, now I'd say in Europe, like Britain, the popular race taboo did not come into place until the mid seventies or or eighties. So Hmm. well, much later than the American race taboo, which became more widespread earlier. However, at the elite levels, you can you can already see in the writings of British elites when they were discussing the Commonwealth Immigration Act yeah. cut off access for the whole British Empire to Britain. Those sorts of anti-racist discourses were already important in the early 1960s. Uh, and so this taboo, it just seems to have arisen in several places at once. And until we actually find a way of unpicking it, making it more of a proportional thing rather than a tripwire, mm. then I just don't think we're going to be able to get out of these, these questions. And
1: that is something that we should return to, basically, what are the antidotes go, going forward? But I wanted to go back, get back to what you mentioned. I was like, almost overnight, you have the shift because I, I can see this like change from, as you said, first from the US, you have change in policies and then in, in the UK and perhaps further down the road, you get to somewhere in mainland Europe or, or Sweden. But this uh, anecdote of overnight changing the stance with regards to to, to race or ethnicity—it's that's the kind of thing you would find in a country like Sweden, uh, where you have you have room for one general opinion at a time. So it's it's could you unpack as to I mean how do you it, are we talking about a sort of cum, cumulative uh, cum, um, what is the word I'm looking for cumulative cumulative change that then brings about a qualitative shift? Like, How can we understand these kind of... Do we find these kind of changes in other areas of policy or is it particularly with regards to ethnicity or race?
0: Well, the, you know, there is a certain literature on taboos and deviance, you know, so the taboo over being gay or sex before marriage or, you know, some of these things have declined. Taboos ar- rise up and then they fall away. and And it's interesting to see how that happens. The way it happens is people just make an accusation like you're a racist and if that isn't resisted in some effective way that becomes where the taboo moves to so if they say yeah reducing immigration is racist and nobody makes an argument against that then suddenly that's the new taboo now if somebody comes along and and says no it's not racist in fact it's 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 vital to for a whole bunch of reasons and uh, you're not listening to the people and and we're just going to do i mean to some degree, for example, the rise of the, you know, the Sweden Democrats or the AFD has helped to not entirely break the taboos. But it's helped to push some of these taboos back a little bit. Or the case of the U.S., Donald Trump's takeover of the Republican Party on the basis of making the border a key issue for him, has yes. helped to break taboos against discussing immigration within the Republican Party. So on the right of the spectrum in the U.S., that taboo has actually been pushed back. So there's this whole game of declarative speech acts and resisting those speech acts, and taboos can ebb and flow over time. Um, as we saw with you know, the, the the taboo against homosexuality or something, I mean, that has sort of or, or sex before marriage, that's kind of changed, whereas the, the other taboos around racism have expanded. If you look at the rise of the If you look at public opinion surveys in the U.S. from the 1940s until the 1960s, you can slowly see public opinion becoming more uh, non-racist. So, you know, yes, blacks shouldn't have to sit at the back of the bus in streetcars or, uh, you know, uh, in terms of. They sh- they should have an equal chance at a job. You know, these are s- sort of like in 1944, mm. um, probably the U.S. public was split 50-50 as to whether a black person should have be treated equally in terms of accessing a job. So so but then over time, by the 50s, you know, some of these nursery rhymes that were racist, you know, catch a tigger by his toe was catch a nigger by his toe. Mm-hmm. That, that sort of mm. shifting slowly starting to happen in the 50s. And and so you kind of, I think, hit this tipping point where, yeah, that quantitative softening of attitudes just then suddenly leads to this sacralization of race race Mm. becomes sacred and suddenly there's a flip uh and now in 1965 a report on the black family which was just you know they were getting out of wedlock birth rates of 25 percent. now that's nothing that's the whites have got more than that but Mm. back at the time that was quite revolutionary, and the report was saying, you know, this could be quite a big issue for the for the black community. Of course, it's been a massive issue. He was absolutely right, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, uh, Democratic Party senator. The report was labeled racist. You know, it was basically shelved. That's the first time we see this taboo now starting to encroach into what we might call reason. And, and starting to be shut out more and more and more areas of life as being beyond the pale but of debate.
1: W- one more question. Sorry, Kali, I want know what you want to come in, but <clears throat> one more yeah. question on, on on who the t- taboo affects. Because if you look at someone like the the, the Sweden Democrats, it's only really when they get into parliament into power where you see start to see the real allergic reaction from other parts of the state from uh, media from uh, how politicians debate this i mean the the reference to basically you could the references to the 1930s are by now uh, on an almost like a, <laughs> if not every day like a weekly basis um, yeah. on the one hand in the general populace I think I follow your reasoning that a greater ability to talk about these issues, but within within the intelligentsia or or the circles where you move, I would say that that's primarily where, where the space for these issues have become more taboo or contentious. And the corollary to that in the U.S. context would be that it's only with the Trump presidency that while he of course might have mobilized part of the Republican Party, it's it's also with regards to the allergic reaction from the rest of civil society, the state, it's the political opponents. If if uh, Trump is again, COVID restrictions. There are four COVID restrictions. So the, the issue transmutes into different ones. And you mentioned that this, this child's children's song Catch a Tigger by its tail or toe. Toe, yeah. And where the original was Catch a Nigger by its toe. Um, in Sweden, you would have cultural productions or movies where you could make fun of the tension with regards to ethnicity or race. Most famously in the children's movie "Sunes Sommar where the father of the family, Sune's father. trying to get coffee and then uh, a whole basketball team from the US catches (laughs) him uh, red-handed stealing the coffee and of course these basketball players are Uh, African-Americans and they say oh and what do you call these? They point at chocolate balls and of course in Sweden at the time they were called nigger balls so he tries to say well they're called nigni no they're called (laughs) take it easy all we want is coffee yeah take it and uh, I'll have one of those oh yes by the way what do you call those? We call them ni, ni, n- no 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 we call them vi, vi,
0: vi, n- bread. viener bread. Wiener
1: Oh no
2: you don't. <laughs> and this is a yeah, 1995 yeah. movie I think.
0: Yeah yeah, you know the Europe is a bit later on a lot of these taboos, you know. And and you can see this 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 whole debate over the black peat thing in in Netherlands for example, yeah. but also in Britain, you know, even up until the 1980s you would get you know, racist taunts at black players on the field and bananas thrown at them. You know, this, is, this would be unimaginable in the US in the 1980s. That's not to say there was no racism. There was racism in certain areas of the US. But I think this taboo starts in, it very clearly starts in America and then works its way over to Europe later. And of course, they didn't have the internet. You still had more of a, a delay between when things started in the US and when they show up in Europe. So, But now, of course, it's it's almost synchronous, you know, almost there's almost no delay at all. What I would what I would say, of course, is I also think that I don't think there's a big change recently. I would say that, you know, when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s in Canada, you couldn't discuss immigration either. You were you were already that was off, off, off off limits. Uh, You couldn't talk about ethnic change. That was off limits already. And we had, of course, the first wave of political correctness. And so all of, you know, then it was mainly about, you know, feminism, homophobia, you know, sexism, homophobia, racism, the big three. Now we've got transphobia thrown in. And there have been some innovations, but it's largely the same set of ideas. It's just that the volume maybe has been turned up a little bit. But still, I think you have to go further back uh, before you start to see uh, life before these taboos. And so now these taboos are infiltrating every corner of human life to the point that, you know, going hiking, going skiing, the countryside, all of these are racist now. Um, And so it's just the working out of that logic, which starts, however, with that hypersensitivity and multiculturalism of the – even the 70s, really, 70s and 80s. Um, So I trace these things much further back. I think we're going to have to unpick the entire package in order to sort of arrive at something sane. Mm -hmm. I mean, you talk about the fascist scare, you know. Mm -hmm. So there's this term called red scare, uh, sometimes used in the U.S. McCarthyism was one instance where you, you know, everybody's a communist. There's a communist er hiding behind every stone. There have been those periods in, like, U.S. history. One was in the 1920s, one was in the 50s. But I think we've kind of been living through this fascist scare for A much longer period of time and it's been pretty continuous Mm. that all all you have to do is say oh fascist hiding behind that couch and everybody immediately their mind goes to 1933 and marching with Nazi symbols Mm. Um, you know and in in the case of uh, the US you could see that already you know in the late 30s when you really did have a fascist threat some of the anti-fascist liberal intellectuals went too far and started accusing people who were just American nationalists of being fascists, and that continued a bit after the war. It it but it never had the same power. It had a certain amount of power, but it wasn't able to carry everything before it the way these accusations do now, where they control all these institutions. Because that's the other part of it is that this sort of the, the the people who who I would call cultural socialists, they now control all the institutions and they set the tone in these institutions. Whereas in the past, these institutions actually, they reflected a mix of other influences that that are sort of remnants from a further period in the past. So they weren't completely the the tone, the institutional culture was not so totally saturated with these kind of left modernist, uh, you know, i.e. cultural socialism plus liberal Mm -hmm. modernism. That's now the the orthodoxy in all these institutions. And, and including the school system, including the university system, the media, mm. and this is why they're having such reactions. these these disgust reactions, you get a disgust reaction when there's a violation of a taboo. If I started going to the toilet at the dinner table at a nice restaurant, you know you'd have this reaction mm. Mm. because these are social taboos that have been woven into what what's called the social construction of reality you know everyday reality you're supposed to shake a hand this way you're supposed to kind of embrace a woman this way you're supposed to not go to the blow your nose on the tablecloth what's happening here is it's it's the same thing this taboo around racism which has become highly highly ultra sensitive any violation leads to the same reaction you'd have as if someone blew their nose in the tablecloth mm. and and that's i think explaining the kinds of things you're talking about.
1: I think it's really interesting that it's almost beyond like cognition. It's more to do with like a visceral reaction. Kalle, uh, I come to think of your favorite book, uh, *Road to Wigan Pier*. Orwells. Yeah, <laughs> you, you know the quote yeah. I'm thinking. The the quote I'm thinking about. You you go ahead. The problem with the working class is that they smell.
2: Yeah. All right. <laughs> and, and and that's the sort of social taboo we have have now. And and, and that's sort of very finely t- ties in with. With, with both your points, which is sort of the the, the politics we have now is one of basically discussed for I mean Sweden is very very literally like this because Sweden is, Sweden Democrats are a party basically of, of what people here in Stockholm think of as peasants and they do smell. And, and hence there's sort of a class aspect to it as well because if you want to be led into polite society, You don't blow your nose on tablecloth. You 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 do not speak of 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 certain subjects. Hence, if you if you live in a sort of highly developed service economy, this is a problem because everyone who's sort of sensible enough to obey taboos will sort of uh, be indoctrinated by by this view of the world and of politics. Hence, why. You only get the sort of populist response to this, which is lowbrow, which is uh, sometimes crude, or sometimes just like uh, chocolate internet stuff. But it is the resistance movement, and hence it's got support everywhere, but it can only be sort of manifested in either sort of a populist view, uh, way of the Sweden Democrats or of like uh, a guy in a pickup truck on the countryside or on the internet, which is, it's totally fascinating. And it's very much like uh, Victorian Britain uh, in that sense of, of of having these very strong social taboos, but it's now mainly a cultural political thing uh, more than, than anything.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting the class and status elements of this you know the way i i some i have a little bit of a debate i suppose with those who take that more so kind of neo-marxist approach that would say this is really about class and asserting power
1: it's like class reductionism essentially well just well there's an argument oh sorry you you cut out for a moment there's something with the microphone. I think it's... Yeah. Can you hear me or... Yeah,
2: Yeah, I hear you. Uh, I don't hear Eric.
1: If you take out the um, the cord from the computer and put it back in... Okay. Hey, can now. you hear me now? Yes, yeah. now I can hear you. Okay. All right. <laughs> just, just sit slightly closer to the computer. So... Uh, your your audio yes, okay yeah, yeah sorry you were saying
0: right remember what was the last question again we were talking
2: class um, and uh, uh, we- the class aspect you, you were
1: yeah the tendency to reduce is the class neo Marxists um, who I presume are somehow your friends still no yes mm. yes they are I'm, I'm asking I'm asking for a friend so
0: yeah yeah so you have <laughs> a bunch of you have quite a few people like Rob Henderson or Michael Lind or yeah. uh, Berta uh, Sargon or a couple of others who would argue this is kind of like a new Part of what it means to be part of the new upper class is yep. to have this sensibility. Uh, my view is that you start with the ideas, which become seen as the right ideas, and then those ideas, people heard in behind them. And mm. so it becomes prestigious to have the right ideas. And so in 1890, the right idea was temperance, restriction of alcohol, restriction of immigration. Those were the right ideas. Mm. Um, by the time between 1890 and 19, in the 1920s, there was a shift and those ideas lost power in the elite. Mm -hmm. And they were in, I'm talking about the U S case and they were replaced by a set of other ideas. Um, one of which was that you shouldn't ban alcohol. Another gradually after 1910s was this idea, at least in kind of liberal Protestant circles that immigration was a good thing and you shouldn't restrict it. And now of course there were other elite ideas like eugenics, which was also had quite a bit of prestige. So you had a, you know, and the eugenicists were important for immigration restriction because you had the mass, the popular anti-Catholicism, which didn't have a lot of respectability in the elite, but then you had the kind of eugenic ideas. So race was seen as forward-looking Heredity was scientific and forward-looking. Religious bigotry was backward-looking. Mm. So Catholic was not respectable, but race thinking was respectable. Mm-hmm. That was in the 1910s period. That was starting to be challenged, but only at the edges. So you have these kind of high cultural trends as well, like romantic nationalism. You read Rousseau and what he says, you know, Polish children, they should only be taught by Polish teachers and and people who are proud of both all, all of this this is coming from what would be the extreme left of the time so i mean so there are different high cultural trends but when we move into the 20th century the high cultural trends now are all modernist and liberal they're all about Uh, The individual against the collective, they're anti-tradition. And then increasingly, they are more and more and more egalitarian, more after the 1960s, but to some degree, even before the 1960s. It's just that, again, the dial gets turned up on that. And now, of course, the egalitarianism, cultural equality, equality between identity groups, no race gaps, no gender gaps. I mean, that's kind of the dominant way of thinking, But, but as ter- in terms of class, I would say that this tends to follow rather than lead. So the, the self-interest, the desire to please your customers and clients and staff in your corporation, be a woke corporation, that's all sort of derivative, mm-hmm. secondary, once these ideas have, have attained prestige within universities and within the intellectual sphere. So we kind of have to, I think, to explain... To my mind, the class stuff is less interesting. And also, I should say that, you know, if you looked at the 2016 election, Mm. half of college-educated whites voted for Trump. Mm. The degree to which income hardly matters for populist voting, Mm. class barely matters. It matters a little bit. Education matters more. But even education doesn't matter anywhere near as much as, I would say, psychological disposition. So you can be a very well-educated, very well-traveled, Financially well-off person living in Stockholm, but if you're psychologically wired to prefer the present to be like the past, you see differences disorder. You can you're going to be a Sweden Democrat, and now you may whether you vote for the Sweden Democrats or not is not clear. I think if you're a male, you are more likely to vote for the Sweden Democrats, even kind of person. Um, so I think if you looked at the voting for the Sweden Democrats, you would probably find a lot of university educated people in that mix mm. as well. But it's just that the working class are more likely.
1: Okay, but it's your it's your point that, that it's the cultural issues or exposure to multiculturalism rather than economic detriments that is the defining factor here.
0: I would say that's a consensus now in the academic quantitative literature on survey data. There's very, very, very little evidence that your employment status or income class makes that much difference to Who you're going to support, Mm. Um, and and your immigration attitudes in particular. The immigration attitudes are much more linked to psychological dispositions, your ideology, and that kind of thing.
2: So, so that's fascinating, and I think I I I saw a quote from you somewhere. The difference. I mean, you talked about the the North of England and the difference between you. Because you have this narrative of of populism, quote unquote, uh, of of people being, you know, uh, from coal towns and to the nord, old industrial centres of the north, and them being, you know, uh, impoverished by globalisation, and hence voting for things like Brexit and, and against immigration, and, and London being this hotbed of of you know uh, secular, intellectual, multiculturalism, and right. and really what we we should be. Thinking and talking about is basically the sort of an algorithm of, of, of both a sort of psychological character, but also m- more of a cultural outlook than sort of an economic status, which I find interesting because it's not yes. the narrative to hear.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you were to take white working, white uh, non not university people without university education who are white, born in Britain, age forty-five in london you take that person and you take the exact same person 45 years old born in britain white british outside of london anywhere countryside small town north of england there's essentially no difference in their likelihood of voting brexit Mm. so the only difference is that you london has fewer as a proportion fewer people that don't have a degree fewer people who are old, fewer white British people, and it has more ethnic minorities, more college educated, and more young people. And that is the only reason London voted to remain. And by the way, it voted to remain sixty-two thirty-eight. so 38% of London still voted to leave. And all of that is lost, and people think there's something about the cosmopolitan atmosphere of London. From what I can tell, that makes zero impact. Almost zero impact on the uh, on people's choices. It's mainly down to these demographics uh, fact. You know, it's just compositional. What are the types of people that live in one place versus another? Coastal towns. It's all old retirees that are all white. Yeah, they're going to vote, and they are, and very few of them have a degree. So you're going to have a different sort of pattern coming. And so it's true that the economically dynamic areas tend to be the multicultural areas because they attract the immigrants and that is a therefore an illusion so the the depressed areas tend to be more homogeneous uh and so it's an illusion that if you just look at poverty you can say oh well places that are, are struggling left behind they're the ones who are voting for trump for for leave for maybe the sweet democrat but actually it's just an artifact of the types of people that live in these places and so i don't put in very little stock in the economics
2: okay so so that so that's so that's an explanation but it's also very sort of negative for people who are positivist in the sense that there's a lot of still uh going around the free market types who are like no but the there is no real problem here because the the only thing is that we need more GDP growth and we need more like if these people had x amount of money uh, more in income they would obviously see sort of this in an, in a different light and the problem is always people who are conservative who are you know they haven't they they're not as progressive in their outlook. And actually, like, this seems to not be as mutable as these people uh, seem to believe, because there's a lot of people who, who, who sort of put stock in, I mean, traditionally conservative values. Now, I don't say that as like a political term, but more as the the psychological outlook of a person.
0: Yeah, I think that the, the economic explanation is has very little behind it. And in fact, I'd even go as far as to say that when times are good, people worry less about the economy and immigration has a chance to become a more important issue for for elections mm-hmm. if you look at the 20 post 2014 populist moment this was after the 20 2007 eight financial crisis you can you can take a natural experiment 2007 eight financial crisis 2015-16 migrant crisis which one led to a big jump in populist support it's the 2015-16 crisis 2007 eight had zero impact and so, and, and I think that's, and in fact, I'd almost argue the reverse, like when things started to get better, that's, you know, as we get into the later, you know, 2009, 10, 11, 12, people are worrying less about the unemployment and the economy. And then suddenly immigration is rising, terrorism is rising, as a concern. And then once you get those issues rising up people's priority list, that's when you get populism. So that's why I would say if cost of living becomes less important if Russia and Israel become less important, then I would predict we're going to have more populism, not less, because there will be more space, more oxygen for immigration as an issue, to integration as an issue to rise up the political agenda. So actually, if anything, I think we're probably um, in a – So one, just give me one – can I Go just – yeah, yeah. do it, do it. Hi, James. Yes. Yeah. I, I believe it or not, I'm actually in the middle of a podcast, <laughs> but I will be done in about. it, it, it could work or if it doesn't. Oh. Yes, I, I definitely want to take yeah. uh, Okay. <laughs> oh. Sorry about that. It that's no. actually
1: great content. <laughs> <laughs> but to take to take Carl's point that in a way both neoliberals, liberals, uh, neo Marxists would in that sense have an, um too great emphasis on economics because they think that that would also like. Okay, it's a problem. We can also solve it. What we're discussing here is that not just things get better; uh, they get worse when they get better, so to speak, in the terms of like polarized debate. Yeah. But but another way of saying that is that it's then perfectly rational from someone who is a progressive to maintain high migration rates. And if I mean, if you look into the kind of Demographic patterns, that hasn't changed too greatly, irrespective of if it's been Labour or, or Tory in power. This, of course, your your colleague Matt Goodwin has laid out in, in polls as well, uh, or, or in stats, that d- these rates... Keep going up, so to speak, um, and without well, yeah. st- without sounding too much like Peter Hitchens, that the Conservative Party is not conservative at all. But but <laughs> in a way, it, w- w- what I think is interesting with regards to uh, previous conversation on on Ireland and the backlashes we're seeing there with regards to to migration, and also in the UK where you sort of have a, a impetus for a reform party, it's interesting to see in a way like your take on what the political landscape will look like going forward if if it is the case. That if not demography, then culture is destiny.
0: Yes. I mean, what will the political landscape look like going forward? I think you're right. First of all, that the both left and right have a strong pro-immigration streak. You know, the, the, the conservative parties uh, the business lobbies are very closely connected with the, the, the conservative parties, the business donors. The MPs tend to be drawn from university. Uh, where they were attracted to the right mainly for free market ideas. At least mm. that used to be the case. Maybe that's changing as the mix of ideas that's, that's coming through, say, alternative media and podcasts is a little more NatCon and a little less LibCon. Yeah. Maybe there will be a shift in that young generation, but at least through the eighties and the nineties, <clears throat> you look at a lot of the Tory MPs, they were attracted by Hayek and by uh, Thatcher and the free market ideas. Mm. So, so you have the free market ideas plus the business lobbies and donors they are setting the direction of the uh conservative party and, and in britain they're a very important force in the um, republican party in the united states and any conservative parties uh, and on the left you've got this sort of what i would call the cultural socialists or the left modernists and, and so they're dominant there too they're both pro immigration um it's interesting you know in new zealand where they Ardern promised to reduce immigration from eighty thousand to forty thousand. Mm. She was on the the left and was being resisted by the the right party, who were not making that promise. Canada, where they've got a ridiculous level, level of immigration under Trudeau, the so called populist conservative party leader. Yes, he's good on some things, but he's not. He's he has refused to challenge. Uh, Trudeau on the numbers question. So I think this shows where in both cases, it's partly about being politically correct and abiding by a taboo, but also it's about business lobby. And so, yeah, how do you then, you know, I don't, I, I don't see any way out of this other than a populist party threatening. So right now, the Reform Party in Britain is broke They've broken 10%. They're now costing the Conservatives Party. Already, the Tories are well down in the polls. But the debate is going to be, well, did the Tories lose because they moved too far right and therefore their voters switched to the Labour Party or they moved too far left and therefore their Labour switched to the Reform Party? But the fact the Reform Party is there uh, is very important. UKIP did the same thing. UKIP under Nigel Farage forced the Conservative Party to the right on immigration in Europe. Now, of course, it then betrayed, it did uh, Brexit, but it, it betrayed on immigration. And so now the question is going to be, what is the fallout going to be? So I, the, 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 the dynamic I see is that the populist, the challenge must come first from the populist right. That then forces the center right into a rethink and makes it say, or perhaps the center-left, like in Denmark, into a rethink, and then they adapt as a result of this challenge. I think that's the only real way to make progress. And it doesn't matter if that's in a first-past-the-post system like Britain or the U.S., or whether it's in a proportional representation system as in Europe.
2: Mm. Maybe you can help me out on this, because I'm... I'm- constantly having a struggle of thinking what's the most important driving force here in the sense of we've talked about, uh, about these taboos we've talked about so, sort of how they were created but they're perpetuated by a system I mean uh, a person like Cartes Yavin would, would call it the cathedral but you could call it uh, academic institutions you could call it you know the the end product of the long march through the institutions who who believe that these taboos are not only necessary but but basically just a start for uh launching sort of a, a further progressive project and we see i think in, in a country like sweden who now has a ostensibly le- right conservative liberal uh, government it's very hard to get things done because you have institutional resistance from from the mm-hmm. all the lobby groups all the academics in a country where you cannot produce i mean for instance uh, statistics on things like crime etc cetera, etc cetera, because because well, it's been taboo to do so. It's very hard to formulate policy, and it's hard to also. You could see this in, in in Trump's case. I think it's the seminal one where he sort of wins the sort of battle, but but loses the war in the sense that he does not have any institutional support at all. And 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 this is, I think, what what, what sort of conservative politicians around the West are afraid of because they go into power to try to do things, but then they get this heavy resistance from. From uh, you, would probably call it the deep state. I think that's uh, the blob. Yeah, uh, yeah the, blob. the blob. We call it the blob. The blob is great. The, it's a great term. The blob is a, is yeah. a good but, term. But
0: what I would say is, this is kind of, I think, going to be the big next big challenge for the the natcon populist right is to say, well, how are we going to break the power of the cathedral? Now, I'm I'm more optimistic than some. I so I I think that we haven't even begun. We haven't even begun If you look at, for example, let's take a, a case of success. The American Supreme Court, which, you know, this used to be run by liberals. And then the, there was a conservative legal movement with the Federalist Society at the helm. And what the Federalist Society does is it then it vets candidates scores candidates so that they can be placed at different levels uh, of the US court system by incoming Republican administrations. And they've managed to shift the composition of the Supreme Court that way. And and so what that is saying is, we are going to, we know that all institutions drift left. So we're going to consciously resist that by politicizing these institutions and placing people with our values in those institutions, because we don't trust We do not trust the established members of this institution to reproduce the institution in a fair and balanced way. Mm. And I'm afraid we're going to have to increasingly recognize that that is reality. So this means a withdrawal of trust from institutions. It also means a centralization of, at least in theory, the possibility to centralize power away from these institutions. Mm. Um, and, And so I mean, I don't Clearly, with a court, you have to, you know, it's protecting rights. That's very important. But you can at least politicize selection. The next stage is, I think, the politicization of the bureaucracy and the civil service. And that's starting, I think, to happen again. The U.S. is probably out front on this. So... The Heritage Foundation has now been developing, with about 75 organizations, this this database of tens of thousands of potential appointees for uh, the U.S. government. And when it – they were unprepared last time, but this time around, what they're going to do is is essentially try and essentially almost invade the federal government with these appointees. The part of – in order to do that, you have to set the legal landscape so that you have to be able to fire people. You need to change the laws first. To allow you to fire people, to allow you to shut down certain bureaus and agencies and create new agencies. There is a whole kind of battle plan there that needs more thought. Uh, I think it's doable. Um, it's going to be a kind of revolution where you are in making political appointments. So, this idea of a neutral, non political institution, I think that's been proven false because of infiltration and corruption. Pretty well-naked ideological corruption, even though it goes under the euphemism of just being nice and tolerant or whatever. Mm. It's not. It's actually importing very radical ideas and political biases. So uh, th- what's going to be needed is very hands-on reform of these all of these institutions, enforcing political neutrality, including you you All public buildings, we're not going to do any flags other than the national municipal flag. So no pride, no black lives matter, no special this day, that day, all of that can be removed. Um, You can enforce political neutrality and non-discrimination and hiring. So we move all of the politics out of any public funded institution, including schools. I think you can do it. All of this is starting to happen. Ron DeSantis is probably the leader Hmm. in the US case. I, I think we're gonna that is going to be the next phase of trying out these tools to see what can be done to change the character of of the blob or the deep state. I, I think that hasn't been tried. I think it's been all taught. The right has essentially given in. If you look since Reagan, for example, Reagan tried to roll back affirmative action, tried to change the, the teaching of history in the. US, those battles were won by the other side. The other side had the stamina, Whereas all of the right-wing lobbies, guns, abortion, thats the, those are the things, these low tax, those are the things the right-wing lobbies paid attention to between elections. We're actually going to need lobbies that pay attention to issues like immigration, like wokeness in, in the civil service and political bias in the civil. We're going to need lobbies that score MPs on how well they're doing on that, get them to sign pledges. All of that stuff is going to have to happen in between elections in order to to hold their feet to the fire on these sort of more nat-con-type issues. Because mm. it's not enough just to have an election every four years.
1: I mean, to give Reagan his due, he did get rid of the solar yeah. panels on the White House. All right. <laughs> but but I think this is where we should actually pivot to your own work now, Eric, mm. with regards yeah. to the heterodox social sciences center that you're building up. Like, Because what you describe now, in a way, or laid out is, is a numbers game where evidently there's fewer conservatives within higher education, And several of them are either being pushed out or leaving themselves. So I wonder with regards to everything you just detailed, uh, which is essentially or ostensibly a a sort of warlike situation with regards to the regime of government as as of the moment and regime here in, in including, of course, not just specific party, body politics as in like body in a in a very yeah. <laughs> state like way. But what are the mechanisms that you see going forward, both regards to your own work and how that can be scaled up? And in a way, now we, we are moving to a close. But I think it touches on how you end taboo the book that's coming out next year on what are the antidotes the actual remedies that one could could put forward or or commit yourself to
0: well yeah i mean i think there's really two approaches i mean one is setting up new institutions and i'm involved in doing that with the center for heterodox social science where we're going to do alternative alternative social science. And so I've got a course on woke, for example, which is 15 weeks open to the public. I'm launching that in January. And if you go to my Twitter, you can see on the pin tweet that's uh, available. Now, that would be one example. Um, so you can do that. But I think there are only certain fields where this is possible. Media is probably the most open to new entrants. The barriers to entry, as long as they don't censor and, and um, you know, demonetize and do all the other tricks that some of the other social media platforms do. It's, it's a more wide open field and you can get existing legacy media challenged a little bit more, uh, perhaps less so on the um, television media side and more so in the print side. However, it's much more difficult at universities. You know, I'm at the own Buckingham, which is the only university out of 181 where free speech is tops and social justice is, is, you know, subservient. Although there's still, you will see pride flags, you will see other things around the campus. It's still largely, probably leans progressive in any case. But... It's the only institution. University is very difficult because you have alumni, you have reputations. Those rankings change very little. It's very hard to set up new institutions. I know the University of Austin has set up, but it's very difficult to challenge the hierarchy. Um, and so, in many cases, you cannot create. You can't create a new civil service. Now, you cannot. So, what I would say is, I think that the biggest thing that needs to happen is not so much. Yes, we need to try to do an alternative. Media. Um, I think it's harder in movies, perhaps. Although I know Daily Wire is trying uh, to challenge it, but but I I think taking over the existing legacy institutions or reforming or challenging them is very important. So I think actually the biggest part of what we need to do is to try and reform the blob, to try and reform public institutions. Um, and and I think a good analogy for this is. If you compare what Elon Musk has done with Twitter now, X, to what Gab and Parler and some of these newer sites, free speech sites, were able to do, Rumble and so on, I think there's no question that Elon Musk's takeover of an existing kind of legacy, if you like, institution has had a much bigger impact. And likewise, I would expect, for example, that reforming public schools preventing them from teaching critical race and gender ideology and, and indoctrinating is going to be a lot more important than allowing school choice and new schools to be set up. Because I don't believe those, even if you have school choice, most of the people are going to choose based on criteria that do not threaten progressive orthodoxy. So just get my kid into to the top university, get them ahead. That's all that I care about. And, and, and so even with a private system, some of the worst offenders on the woke stuff are in the private system. So I don't believe in school choice setting up new institutions as an alternative. I think you should do it. It's going to have an impact in media, but its impact in the institutional space is going to be a lot more limited. So I'm an interventionist. I don't believe. Now, I am a procedural liberal. I believe in the rights of the citizen, for example. And and I don't think government should be intruding into the rights of the citizenry. But I do think that, for example, governments intruding into the autonomy of public institutions like universities and schools is perfectly legitimate in a democratic system. I don't believe institutional autonomy is as necessary for liberalism. I think that institutions must earn their right to be autonomous, earn the trust of the population. Uh, If they break trust by becoming ideological, then they should lose that autonomy. And so that is essentially, I actually see a centralization Of power into elected government which the people have a say in they have no say in these institutions i think elective government needs to penetrate and reform these institutions to remove the political coloring of these institutions i think that's perfectly legitimate um and and you know to some extent that's the principle of the u.s supreme court we don't trust this institution to be neutral and so we are going to have to politically contested. I think we've just got to expand that philosophy to a wider set of public institutions.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good point because I think, uh, especially in this country, we've been doing a lot of so-called reforms under their banner of sort of democratization. And it's always been towards the left side of the spectrum. It's always meant... Uh, you know, uh, under the cover of night, let's make this a more leftist institution by by you know uh, making it adhere to to certain uh, certain rules. And I think that this is a great point because I think uh, in in a country like Sweden, like like Canada, and like the UK, who has, for instance, state media which which is very powerful, this is a must. And I think the sort of libertarian view that has come out of the right for the last thirty years has been inadequate to the task and and really needs to be done away with.
0: Yeah. I mean, you can see, for example, and and I think like right now, okay, even though I am in favor of abolishing the Canadian broadcasting or funding, government funding for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, which is the position of the conservative, I I think his approach in Canada is really, well, if we, you know, this is really an economic issue. And if their services are valued by the public, then they'll be able to generate revenue. My view is the problem with that is the CBC will then be privatized and will become – well, it's already as woke as it can possibly be, but I don't think that's enough. I think you actually – it would be almost better to keep the CBC within public control and ruthlessly enforce political neutrality. So the BBC has some pressure in Britain to be politically neutral, but the people who oversee it from the Conservative Party have gone native. They don't want to ruffle feathers That's the problem. You need somebody who is going to fire people, who's going to leak to the media, who's going to take a much more adversarial position and say, no, we're gonna we're gonna track you using big data, and you are gonna and, and then we've now got big data we can track very closely. You're gonna be neutral down the line. Um and I think we can do that. We have to get our hands in dealing with content, school lessons, school history, what is being taught, interfere with that, not just say oh, well, we'll have private schools where they can teach classics and, and do non-woke stuff. It's, to my mind, that sort of free market solution is is not going to work. Uh, it, it's only going to work at the edges. It's great if you're a super well-informed parent. But for most of the kids, they're still going to be indoctrinated and you're still going to have the problem of, you know, two-thirds of young people who think James DeMore should have been fired mm-hmm. by Google. So, so yeah, I think we, we are going to have to – get into the weeds of all of these cultural questions and really start to reform institutions in what is quite a heavy-handed way, a sort of centralized way. It's still democratic and it's still, you know, it's respecting people's individual rights. And it's not going against the law, but it is saying we don't trust the institutions to be neutral.
1: We waited with one quite fundamental question till the end because we're coming to a close now. Yeah. But essentially, I think me and Carl have been also curious as to ask sort of what made what made you snap or how did you change <laughs> your mind? Because in a way, the way you reason around these things is very much from the outlook of a reformer, or maybe we should say a reforminator. <laughs> but, but but I would say like that puts you already in a minority with regards to how academics even view their own uh, work and deed as of the moment, more thinking of a sort of status quo preserver uh, and they might think of themselves as doing that for some sort of universal notion of justice. But we ask this question also in part because these are the kind of questions that people like yourself, who want to change the system, but receive push pushback. Like, okay, so why are you doing this? What happened to you? And of course, we could retort back, "Well, what happened to academia? What happened to our liberal colleagues or progressive colleagues?" But do you see what we're trying to to grasp here? And
0: you know, I w- I'm never somebody who was a progressive and became a conservative. You know, I I don't think my views have changed much since about age ten. I mean, <laughs> so I think, however, I was formed. Psychologically or environmentally, maybe it was growing up abroad, right? I think that's no doubt a big part of the uh, of, of of the picture. Um, you know, I've always felt like an alien in these institutional settings, and this is going back to the late nineteen eighties and early nineties when it was all about political correctness and multiculturalism. You know, those those are things I instinctively disliked from the start um, and thought were strange from the start you know and i don't i can't really explain why but for whatever reason i was never that was never part of something i could see the logic of and maybe i always like to understand what i'm buying before i buy it whereas maybe more people will just kind of go along with it or maybe it was something i was more interested in i've always been interested in culture and so therefore i took these things more seriously whereas other people they might have just you know it would have just washed over cuz they're mainly interested in paying cars mortgages or the economy or yeah so <laughs> so you know, getting money or whatever. So I think that's maybe, those are some of the reasons. Uh, I, I never went through a Marxist phase. You know, a lot of right-wing intellectuals did go through these kind of Marxist phases. Like, I can't claim, like David Goodhart, I can't claim to have done that. So, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not, I don't think my views have actually changed all that much. over I've always somewhat of a national populist type conservative, never. I mean, I was to some degree a bit more attracted to free market ideas in the past, Uh, It's not that I reject those ideas, but I sort of understand the the problem with too much economic dislocation. And, uh, you know, I still haven't reconciled myself to unions, but I understand that you need to be able to protect workers. It might be through helping, you know, through the welfare state, which I've always supported. So I I don't know. But but I don't think my outlook has really changed a lot. It's more that things have kind of changed around me, you know. So even – this thing about wokeness. Um, yeah, I was, uh, you know, already to some degree, I won't say getting in trouble, but ruffling feathers in the early 1990s on some of these questions. Hmm. So it's not as though I, I, do, I just think that we're living through a, a period which is not really that different from uh, 30 years ago, In at least in the intellectual level. It's just that there's been a Perhaps a deeper penetration and intensification of these ideas Mm. in institutions. As
1: we started out with me and Carl, this is part of some kind of change also when we try to start working also with um, uh, private actors in changing the outlook of the um, corporate leadership.
0: That's exciting because, yeah, the private sector side of this, I tend to think that they follow trends, you know, but I also think there may be some role for certain kinds of government regulation around especially if there's if there's cartel-like behavior around having to have the right values in order to have access to markets. And, and I think there are perhaps places where you could have political neutrality enforced from a regulatory regime as well.
2: I think also, me UNc you and see, I, I think we... we we tried to run and you one is involved with this in Sweden a lot and and, and running events for people in, in who are sort of uh, heterodox thinkers in the private sector and who have these sort of the sort of mindset that I think you have and I think we 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 share to to a degree as well of of being you know um, in opposition to the current sort of trends. And I think mobilizing them and sort of also giving them sort of a, Information and 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 a bit of hope, is 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 really a thing that's not done because I think a lot of left sort of types go into academia and become the sort of experts. Uh, and and there are a lot of people sitting with sort of clenched fists in the, the private sector and, and thinking just, what am I paying taxes for? But these people need to be, you know, mobilized in, the, in, in a sort of intellectual sense, not only to be, you know, economical conservatives, which they sort of naturally mm-hmm. are in many cases, but also Taking an interest it's in what's what's really happening in, in government policy and, and and the broader culture,
1: but it's but it's also playing the numbers game that if you want to build this alternative administrators essentially, you need to go into some sphere that is relatively healthy, which the private sphere is in terms of having to be competitive at some at some level, mm-hmm. and the general populace in this regard is not woke, yeah. but it rather like the, the admin, administrators, the the, the 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 manager class. Is the one that's the problem here. Right. So if you want, so by working with people whose main mindset is production as opposed to control, then if you can develop the intellectual non non binaryism among them, <laughs> then then you have like uh then you have
0: careful a, with that term non binary.
1: <laughs> but like then you have then you have an alternative uh, elite to supplant the previous one with. We're trying yes. to we're trying to build some kind of um, a class coalition in that regard,
0: or, or or trying to starting with the university chapters, you know, and getting uh, people a, t- a pipeline of talent, you know, all of those sorts of things which the left is so good at yes. is probably something that that we're going to have to do. T- yeah. <laughs>
1: okay, that will have to be the, the concluding comment then. Thank thank you so much. <laughs> okay, Eric.
0: thanks, Johan. Thanks, Carl. Thanks <laughs> very much, you guys. All the best. Yes. Take care. Okay. Take care.